Let's turn to Luke 15 and let's read the story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15. And let me say this. The Bible does not call the prodigal son the prodigal son. Theologians call the prodigal son the prodigal. The Bible doesn't even use the term prodigal. Maybe one of the modern translations might. But this is the story of a man who wastes his father's money. We call him the prodigal son because prodigality, as we're going to see, prodigality is spending. But because of perhaps just ignorance and, and false assumptions of contextual clues, we assume a prodigal is someone who leaves the father's house and spends their money on brothels and beer and then repents and comes home. But what we will see before this is done is that you can be a prodigal son right here today in this house and not ever waste a single dollar on boo, women, tattoos, things, or weed. You can be a prodigal and be a deacon. You can be a prodigal son and be the preacher. We have just kind of made this cultural anomaly called the prodigal son who goes off and abandons mom and dad, lives like the devil, and comes home with repentance. No, no. Prodigality is all about wasting what God gives you today. Prodigality is one of the secrets to living in poverty the rest of your life. So let's read this beginning in verse 11, Luke 15, 11. And Jesus said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided unto them his living. We understand from the Hebrew culture, this is the son saying, I wish you were dead. I find it so interesting. This attitude has never left the young people, where the young people look at their parents and say, you're dumb. I wish you were dead. You don't know what you're talking about. I was meditating on this yesterday. I was actually cutting my grass. It's grass cutting time. And I was meditating on the prodigal son and this example. And we're living in a generation that that shakes their fist, this youngest generation. It's always been in every generation, but this youngest generation says, you're not going to tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. Dear Reddit, what should I do? <laughs> Dear Instagram followers, what should I do? You won't let the people that gave birth to you, that worked their finger to the bone for you, tell you what to do, but you'll get online with a bunch of pedos and perverts and ask them what to do, but nobody's going to tell you what to do. It's a good way to go to hell, following that foolish wisdom. Give me my inheritance, which is the Jewish way of saying, I wish you were dead. And not many days after, verse 13, the younger son gathered all together, and he took his journey into a far country, because he knew he couldn't live like that in the shadow of his daddy's reputation. And there he wasted his substance with riotous living. Now, let me give you a footnote. The word wasted there is so wonderful. It is the word for threshing wheat. It basically says to cast up into the wind. He took his daddy's inheritance, and though he spent it in places of business, the Bible calls it casting it into the wind, just like you would wheat, tossing it into the wind to separate the wheat grains from the chaff. This is how many Christians handle God's money. They cast it into the wind. They waste it on things that God has not ordained them to spend it on. They waste it on things that their friends are doing. This is the definition of prodigality, wasting money on useless things. Now, what makes it useless is not the value of it, but where you are in life in relation to that thing. There's nothing wrong with a Starbucks coffee, even though you know, we call it five bucks now, 
because Starbucks coffee is about $5 a cup of coffee. But if you can't even pay your rent, Starbucks coffee is useless to you. So stop trying to be cool and Pinterest driven by buying Starbucks coffee and pay your rent. Now, if you can afford your mortgage or your house is paid for and you still got plenty of money, there's nothing wrong with Starbucks. But same thing with cell phones. Some of you are convinced you need the data package because you're addicted to social media, but you can't even pay your utility bill. If you can't pay your utility bill, you don't need a $100 a month data package. That is frivolous. It's useless. That's prodigality. You are the prodigal son. You are taking your father's money, your father in heaven, and you're just tossing it into the wind, trying to keep up and have fun. And that's not wisdom. He tossed his father's money into the air with riotous living. Now, riotous, again, means just wasteful extravagance, spending it on the stuff you don't need, trying to keep up with the Joneses, perhaps. And when he had spent all, because it will go quickly. Now, this was a wealthy man. This was a very wealthy man. He has servants, slaves, fatted calves. He's a very wealthy man. His inheritance would have been an enormous amount of money, but this kid blew through it. Proverbs says, an inheritance gotten hastily will in the end come to poverty. We also, I made a comment on this in our Sunday school. You can go, there's all sorts of research done and study how quickly lotto winners are poor again. And lotto winners are poor because they were poor to begin with. It's been said many times, a lottery is a tax on the poor. The only people that play lotto are poor people because people who know how to manage their money don't waste time on it. And let me just tell you, I hold to the fact that lotto is a sin. It's gambling. And it's you looking for money for nothing while you waste God's money. It's gambling. It's addictive. So we don't endorse it. We don't support it. I don't, if you've done it, just repent. I don't endorse gambling or lotto or anything. It's a tax on the poor. And then we try to church it up and say, well, this provides income for folks to go to college on, on the backs of folks who won't ever go to college. So how does that fare? The only folks that play the gambling lotto are poor folks. That gives us money for Tennessee First or whatever the, the estate, uh, uh, whatever is, for kids to go to college, scholarship. And so scholarship money goes to kids who won't ever go to college, or uh, for the kids who will go to college, and it doesn't go to the kids who won't ever go to college, but their parents are being taxed because they're too foolish and they gamble. How, how, is this, how is this ethical? But boy, you can church it up and sell it and voters will buy it. Anyway, that's frivolous. It's wasteful living. We ought not do that. Lotto people win the lottery, 50 million, 100 million, 400 million, sometimes split three ways. And the study says that within two years, those folks are usually broke again. You give someone who knows how to manage their money a million dollars, it'll last the rest of their life. You give any one of us in here maybe half a billion dollars like some lottos get to, we'll afford everybody else the rest of their life. How in the world does somebody go through $20 million in two years? Just like this kid, tossing it into the air because they have no discipline whatsoever. When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine. Isn't that convenient? In the land, and he began to be in want. His daddy wasn't in want. And he went and joined himself to the citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. This is a Jewish story. Swine are unclean. You're not just feeding swine. You're stepping around in their, their feces. What a humbling indictment and a picture of what sin will do. This was a kid who was a wealthy man's son. He never fed swine. The servants did, if they had any to begin with. 
Now he's feeding the lowest of all animals, the nastiest of all animals, the animals that cool themselves off by rolling around in their urine and feces. That's where he's working every day. And he used to be a rich kid. And he would have fainted had he, and filled his belly with the husks or the pea pods that the swine did eat. He was so hungry, he would have fought the pigs for their scraps. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, wait a minute, there wasn't a democratic socialist country to give him? So you mean when you aid people, they don't repent of their sin? The moral of the story is not social injustice. The moral of the story is don't waste your father's stuff. The moral of the story is you don't help people who can't be helped. You don't throw good money after bad. Amen. And when he came to himself, no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, so you mean he repented. He said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise, good for you, man, and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. No help. And he was in a distant country, and he had to come back harder than he went because he had no money to come back with. But you know, when you're eating pig food, you'll, you can, you know, you've got nowhere else to go but up. Any food after that's an improvement. We often hurt people by giving them help they've not earned yet. We often hurt people by holding their hand as they go off into the abyss, lying to them, slipping them burger money. This young man only repented when he was completely cut off with no help and no contact from his father. We as Americans are so soft, we call it love, but it's hate. We call it love, but it's wickedness. If you want someone to repent, you cut them off. You don't slip them burger money. You make sure if they're going to repent, they're willing to come back the whole hard way. Sin they did on their own, repent they can do on their own. Because if it's true repentance, they'll come the whole way. We often short circuit it by thinking they need our help. And really what we need is their affection because we're that dysfunctional and weird. We're not helping them. We're selfishly helping ourselves, which hurts everybody. He came back the whole way. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no more worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. So evidently he was all but naked. No clothing, no shoes. He walked home barefooted. He went to a foreign land. He came home barefooted. And we're trying to help people. We're trying to plead with them. Please come back to Jesus. Please come back to Jesus. Hang them out to dry. May their feet bleed on the way back spiritually. And may they fall on their knees before their father who they sinned against and say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son and see what their faith of repentance can do for them. You and I cannot restore people. We don't, I understand Galatians 6, 1 says, you that is spiritual, restore such one's spirit of meekness. When you see a brother overtaken in a fault, that means they're stumbling in your midst, not when they're out there in the world. If they've got God in them, they'll find a way back. You pray a miserable and convicted. You pray that they hurry up and eat pig husks. <laughs> he put shoes on his feet and bring here the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For my son was dead. Prodigality. 
was the sin. Wasting God's money is why his father said, you're dead. His, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. And we'll stop there because then we transition to a second part of the parable. Prodigality defined. Wasteful spending. You can do that even after you tithe. Wasteful spending. It's money that God gave you that he didn't give you permission to spend on what you just spent it on. It's living beyond your means. It's living without a budget. Without a budget, you will automatically default into wasteful spending. And that automatically puts you and I in the same category as the prodigal son. Many ministries are prodigal in how they handle money. They're wasting it on stuff that is, it amounts to nothing. Dr. Sumrall was very strict. He said, you only spend God's money on two things, winning the lost or making disciples. And if it doesn't win the lost or make disciples, you quit wasting it. Quit spending it. Prodigality means to live profuse. That is spending or giving freely, often to excess. So you have to be mindful that you don't just give money away. I don't give our money to any charitable donation that doesn't preach the gospel. I will occasionally support firefighters and police officers because they're first responders and I believe in what they do. They are ministers of the gospel, according to Romans 13. But I do not give to the United Way. I do not give to the Red Cross. I don't give my money to that. I'm not against them. I just would rather get my money in the kingdom. I, we have the, the fundraisers come through the neighborhood. We very rarely buy cookies or anything like that. I'm just sorry. I'm just not, you know, do it. Our kids have to fundraise for gymnastics, which I think is dumb, but, you know, it's part of it. If not, we're buying the peaches and the strawberries ourselves. But I'm very mindful of what we give our money to. So should you. Reckless extravagance, unrestrained excess. This definitely would define the last 30 years of the prosperity gospel. The irony is the prosperity gospel, which is now considered a heresy. There's a lot of truth in it, as there is any heresy. The prosperity gospel taught people that God wanted to prosper you, which everybody already knew. That's why they worked hard. Now, there's a great hypocrisy in the churches today that preach against God's provision, and yet they themselves have mega ministries. There's one famous minister right now. He is hardcore against the prosperity message, which we will simply define as God wants you to increase. Now, if you don't agree with that, you've not studied your Bible because God has a lot of promises for increase. We're going to look at about 30 of them. But this minister, he is hardcore against God's, the message of provision and prosperity. Now, if he's against TBN's prosperity message, I get it. I'm against that too. It's excess. It's, it's, it's greed. It's filthy lucre. But the, the hypocrisy of this famous minister is that his ministry is so big, it has three different divisions. He draws six figures income from all of them. Claims he works 40 hours a week at each of them, which is impossible. So that now they're, they're mocking him, and I won't get in on the boat. That's why I'm not naming his name. The, the, the meme is money for me, but none for thee. That judgment will fall quickly upon that individual for such gross hypocrisy. Furthermore, he's also using his ministry to slip his son-in-law almost a million dollars. But he doesn't believe in prosperity. I believe in it. I believe in prosperity. I don't believe in TBN prosperity, but I believe God wants us prosper, which is why you put your kids to college, right? Which is why you get overtime, right? 
which is why you cut coupons and have money and have investments, right? So why not believe God and do it his way along the way? But the last 30 years of the prosperity message has been defined by reckless extravagance and unrestrained excess. When you use your partners to collect airplanes, that's prodigality. I'm not against a ministry aircraft. My grandfather was buying when he was killed in 1970, I think 71. He was a Baptist pastor whose evangelistic ministry was growing. And he had four or three daughters and a son at home. And he wanted to be able to preach and get back. So he and his Air Force chaplain buddy were buying a Cessna together, a ministry aircraft, and it crashed and killed them both on the test flight. I'm all for tools, but to use your partners to collect them, that would be extravagance and unrestrained excess and, uh, and prodigality. Indifferent to moral restraints. Prodigality also means indifferent to moral restraints. Well, a budget will give you a moral restraint. Spending money on sin is immoral. So Spending God's money on cigarettes is prodigality. Spending God's money on porn is prodigality. Spending God's money on alcohol is prodigality. You are a sinner with God's money when you spend your money on vice. If you have a social media addiction, if you have a, uh, a video game addiction, this could all be vice and it would be considered prodigality because you're spending God's money to help you sin. That's where we get into a problem. Collecting cats not the porcelain ones, the meow meow ones. <laughs> Prodigality. How many cats do you need? Collecting dogs, collecting chinchillas. Some folks collect animals and you can't even tithe. If you can't afford to tithe, you can't afford a pet. Will a man rob dog? Will a man rob God to feed his dog? Absolutely. Do it all the time in Cookville. Amen. We're spending more money saving pets than we are saving human beings. That's prodigality. Prodigality doesn't have to involve drunken brothel visits. It is often debt for the sake of keeping up with the Joneses or simply living beyond your means. That's prodigality. So if that's you, if you have lived in habitual debt, you find yourself in Luke 15. If you can't get out of credit card debt, that's Luke 15. If you keep buying cars and you're financing them for seven years and you're constantly upside down on cars, that's prodigality. My dad taught me, boy, you don't want to ever be car broke. That means you don't want to take all your income just to buy a car. That's being car broke. And then he'd say, you don't want to buy, be house broke. Buy a house so big you've maxed out your income so you can't afford to do anything, not even repair your house if it ever needs repairing. That's all prodigality, wasteful extravagance, spending money you don't need to spend. Amen. Financial facts. God knows we require money to live, and he promised to add it to us if we seek him first. God promised to add money to us. God promised to add money to us. That's famous Matthew chapter 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things that the Gentiles seek after will be added unto you. Whatever the Gentiles seek, God will add to you. It's a Jesus Christ red-letter promise. But the condition is only met when we seek Jesus Christ first. God knows we have need of money. Today we are talking about the Achilles heel of money management. He knows we have need of money. In our culture, you will need money to the day you die. You could possibly live in the third world and be able to get by without money. I've been to some very remote places where you could literally exist without money. 
but those places are getting further and farther in between. Most cultures in the world today, you've got to have money and you're going to need it to the day you die. And then once you die, it costs you more money. Good solid eight grand is kind of middle of the road funeral these days. We do not pursue money as a means to an end. To do so is to be seduced from the faith and to pierce yourself through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6.17, the King James says, For in doing so, they, peer, um, they err from the faith. The word err is seduction. To pursue money, that's your whole existence, is to be seduced from the faith. To pursue overtime constantly is giving yourself up to seduction away from the faith. Now, nothing wrong with overtime. Nothing wrong with needing it and God giving it to you. But don't live on overtime. I used, I was, I've been there before where I was making an hourly salary or an hourly wage, and it wasn't enough. And I would always try to budget at a 50 or 55-hour work week and try to expand my living at that, and it never worked out. Plus, it's not trusting in God. It's trusting in the ability to get 15 hours of overtime a week. We do not pursue money as a means to an end. To do so is to be seduced from the faith and to pierce yourself through with many sorrows. We seek God. We, we believe him for favor. We work hard and money comes to us. It comes to us because this is the cycle of life. It's because it's how economies work. If you don't work, though, you don't eat. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. If you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. And hunger is a good motivator and a good compulsion for working. We don't finance people who don't work. Get a job. Even in times of COVID in this town, there's always been help wanted signs everywhere. There are help signs wanted today. You can get a job. We have an exploding homeless population and a lot of those are justified and most of them just don't. They just don't want responsibility. What greater way to not have responsibility than to live under a tree and ask money to give you, people to give you money? Homelessness is exploding all over the country. I don't know the percentage. It may just be the numbers are increasing because our population is increasing and the percentage of the population is remaining the same. But everywhere I go now, I see tents everywhere. I was in Oregon two years ago, Portland. There's tents along every road, tents in every roundabout of every interstate. There's just tents everywhere. Homelessness is popular in Oregon. And now I was in Nashville Friday or Saturday, Friday, saw tents along the highway in Nashville. Of course, there's tents along our highway now. Some of those folks are mentally ill. Some of them have drug addiction. Some of them just don't want responsibility. If you don't work, you don't eat. I'm just giving you scriptures on finances. Proverbs 14, 23 says that in all labor, there is profit. That verse works in the entire earth. If it isn't working, it isn't the word of God. It works because it is the word of God. I've done a lot of study on economics and pro-Marxism, pro-socialism, anti-capitalism, and I've read all the rhetoric against stuff that we would call biblical economics, and I just think you don't get it. You just don't get it. You're just blind to the fact you can't see. Jesus Christ said in his word, in all labor there is profit, and it is impossible to prosper without work. Now, you could say, well, lotto, all right, but if you don't work that lotto, it'll come to naught quickly. Inheritance, well, if you don't work that inheritance, it'll come to naught quickly. So it is impossible to profit without work. And if you're allergic to work, if you bring, bring up your children with a, a work allergy, you're going to doom them to poverty. 
folks living on welfare, folks living in the ghetto, folks living in the projects, the housing projects, whatever new name we bring up so it's not so politically incorrect, they get addicted to handouts. They get addicted to not doing anything. We have evangelized our housing projects for 25, almost 30 years around here. I've been in every one of our housing projects evangelizing. There's an attitude that's on almost every one of those people. They don't want responsibility. You have to take responsibility. You have to work. You've got, he, will, he says, I'll, I'll bless whatever you put your hands to, which means you have to put your hand to something. You can't just sit on your hands and expect him to bless your bum because you're sitting on your hands. You got to put your hand to something. And if you'd stick with it long enough, it would begin to prosper. God has given us the power to get wealth. I'm giving you Bible promises. I'm not giving you socialism. I'm not giving you your woke professor's ideologies. I'm giving you the Bible. I would flush every woke humanitarian professor in a heartbeat if I could have the Bible only. Because what the woke professor has to say doesn't amount to nothing. Most of those jack-legged jokers with PhDs had never been outside their university campus, never been to the third world, never done any kind of humanitarian work. They don't get this. They're looking through. They've got this little uh, microcosm, this little uh, biosphere of, of Marxist perfectionism. It's one thing to create a little biosphere in a lab somewhere and market it at some little science thing. It's another thing to create one called planet Earth. And you can model Marxism in your laboratory looking at your 15 college students. It's another thing to travel the world and see it don't work. It's another thing to actually travel the world, preach the gospel, and watch this work around the world. Everywhere I've gone in the world, there's always been the wealthy, the hard worker, and then those that were struggling at the bottom. There's always been that hierarchy. He that gathers by labor shall increase. Proverbs 13, 11. So you gather by labor. Labor increases you. I'm teaching you how to get wealth to begin with. If you ever settle at minimum wage and never work harder than your fellow worker, you'll never increase. This region, I've told you for 14 years now, it is too easy to succeed in this region. All you have to do is work five minutes harder than your coworker. Breathe five breaths a minute faster and clean that griddle just a little bit harder and you'll make management. And management brings two or three dollars an hour raise. And then you make shift manager. Then you make store manager. Then you make regional manager. Before long, you're making six figures a year with a GED. But you cannot be allergic to work. All you have to do is be a little bit more diligent, a little bit more faithful than your coworkers in this region, and you will be running the farm in a year. Or you can just, you know, keep wanting a handout and stay minimum wage. The profit of the earth is for all. No. So you mean God has created profit in the earth? That's Ecclesiastes. The profit of the earth is for everybody. You think it just burps it up? Even if you have a business, businesses are gold mines, but you got to dig it out. The profit of the earth is for everybody. Even the bushman in the backwoods of Africa, he can profit from the earth. I, I like, there's a comedian. He's like actually a Christian guy. He's not a Christian comedian, but he's a Christian guy. He said, <laughs> he said, everybody gets mad at Walmart because they put the mom and pop businesses out of business. And he says, yeah, they were a mom and pop business until they got their act together. 
The difference between a company that succeeds and a company that stays small potatoes is work. Are you, are you working your own business 20 hours a week? Or are you willing to put 90 hours a week in it to make it take off? If you just come to work when your business opens and leave as soon as it's closed, it will never grow. This is pretty simple. If you, want, if you own a business and you want it to grow, you're putting work in three hours before it opens and three hours after it closes. Otherwise, your business just stays the same. Amen. You're awfully quiet this morning, but I guess that defines the last six weeks, so I'm not too offended. I just feel like I'm a little bit more fervent this morning than your response is. Now, mind you, we're one of the poorest regions of the whole country here. And you live here, so the poverty and ignorance and laziness of this region wants to talk to you constantly. And yet, from I think the first month I took over this church, I said, pastoring in this region feels like Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes. I quote this story. I've got to get a gif of it. I've got to just get the 10-second clip of it. Charlton Heston, 1960-something classic, Planet of the Apes. They maroon on this Planet of the Apes, but there's humans there too. So Charlton Heston's an astronaut, and these other guys, they're astronauts. Another white guy and a black guy. They're three surviving astronauts, and they come across a field of Neanderthals. They can't speak. Humans. And they're wearing animal skins. They run at them. And at first they're scared and Charlton and they climb up in a tree and they realize that the Neanderthals aren't running to attack them. They're running from something. They're all bummed out though because they're marooned on this planet. They can't get home to earth. So Charlton Heston in his classic overacting says, look on the bright side. If this is the best they've got, we'll run this planet in six months. I thought about that being this region. Look at your place of employment. Look around you. Why can't you run them? Why can't you manage them except that you don't want to put the work in? Look at, if in your business, look at your competition. Can you do a better product than them? Can you offer a better service than them? If you can, do it. It would glorify God for you to come up. Amen. The profit of the earth is for all. God takes pleasure in our prospering. Psalm 35, 27. Every translation but uh, one of them says God takes pleasure in the prosperity. I, uh, two of them say they translate prosperity as peace. But every other, even NASB, which is considered the best modern Greek translation, says God takes pleasure in our prospering or the prosperity of his people. When we do profit, here's the balance, we are not to trust in it. When we do profit, we are not to trust in it. God doesn't profit us so we can just can it. What's the, well, the expression is get all you can can all you get, sit on the can. That's stinginess. That's an old Southern expression. Get all you can, can all you get, then sit on the can. Yeah, it'll dry up and rot. God, when he does prosper us, it's for a reason. It's for a purpose so we can give, so we can tithe, so we can support, so we can encourage. Yes, there's leftover to prosper in life and have a, a nicer car or to put your kid through a better college or maybe to have dental work. There's prosperity for us. Anybody that would argue against this is a lying hypocrite. I, <laughs> I was uh, once a part of a mega Baptist church and they had somebody get saved in their ministry and donate an airplane for the ministry to sell and convert into missions. The guy said, I just don't even want to deal with the airplane. They, they donated an airplane to the church. I don't, I don't think it was a, like a jet, but I think it was a pretty impressive turboprop. And I remember the pastor standing up and saying, this dear brother believes in our missions. 
and he gave us an airplane that we're going to have to sell. And he told us the offering is to take the money, probably six figures, and put it in missions. He said, he's not a Baptist, and we're praying he doesn't ever become one. <laughs> but the hypocrisy of that statement, we don't teach people to be this generous, but we're glad when they are. But we never teach people to be this generous. But we understand Baptists are stingy, which is what this pastor was saying, big Baptist church. This man's not a Baptist, which is why he's so generous. And we pray he doesn't become like us. Well, just teach your people to be generous then. When we do profit, we're not to trust in it. Thank God for a Christian man who could just give an airplane away. Got his use out of it. He's a little on the lazy side. He didn't want to do the work to sell it. But here, just here's the title. Here's the airplane. Go sell it. Not all prosperity looks the same. Let's read that. Proverbs chapter 30. There's a couple verses we'll turn to and read. Prosperity does not all look the same. God does not promise to make us all millionaires. He just promised to prosper us. It looks different all over the world. 2,000 years ago, it looked like a lot of sheep and goats. Today, it does not look like that. Today, you got a lot of sheep and goats. You don't know what to do with them. That's a cursing, not a blessing. <laughs> the Lord has blessed me with 10,000 sheep. Help. <laughs> It doesn't sound like a blessing. Verse 8, Proverbs 30, verse 8, uh, verse 7. Agar says this, Two things have I required of thee. Deny me not then before I die. Remove from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me or food of my station in life. Now, this is where the socialist woke professor blows a gasket. We're not created equal. We're not destined for equality. We all have different stations in life that we've been allotted. As a pastor, I'm not a megachurch pastor. It's not my allotment. It's not my station. Even missionaries have different callings and giftings and graces and territories. Even Paul said, I don't be a build beyond my measure. I don't build beyond my territory. And Paul had a big territory, but it had boundaries. So even in this kingdom, we're not all equal. We're not all allotted the same thing. And Agur here, which is also Solomon, he said, don't give me poverty or riches. Feed me with meat or food that fits my station in life. That's, that's a great equalizing statement right there. We're not all designed to be at the same station in life. God doesn't want us to be. Even in heaven, there's great and small. We won't even be equal in heaven. So all the endeavor for it right now is frivolous. Equality under the law, sure. Equality of opportunity, sure. But anything apart from that is a direct violation of God's design, which is why it's being promoted by the demonized. And it brings, did you notice, it brings chaos. It doesn't bring equality. It brings chaos. If it was God and we saw it, it would bring peace. All this push for this equality, this equity, all this, however you want to package it, it's not bringing anything called stability. It's bringing chaos, turmoil, and strife. Not all prosperity looks the same. So what our bread for our station of life is is different than maybe a college kid's station in life, than maybe a wealthy businessman's station in life. Everybody's station in life looks different today. Therefore, the prosperity you need is different. Amen. A college kid doesn't need as much as a mom and dad with four kids does. Amen. And uh, a mom and dad with one baby doesn't need as much as the business owner that's got three kids and 25 employees. It's a different station in life. 
The good news is we can earn different stations. We'll see that here in a second. God promises to supply our needs, not our wants. The thing we won't go into heavy today is budgeting because we've covered that so much. You should know you need a budget. A budget will show you what your needs are. Our problem is we confuse needs with wants. My dad would also say that harping on me. Boy, seems like you got a whole lot of wants. But you don't realize your needs are taken care of. Yeah, boy, he, he drilled that into me too. I don't know if it stuck, but I, I remember hearing that. Whenever I was in trouble, I was always called boy. Sometimes there was another term in front of that, but mostly it was just boy. You got a whole lot, seems like you got a whole lot of wants. There's a difference between wants and needs, and we often conflate the two. We mix the two up. We assume they're the same. A budget will tell you what your needs are. And when you know what your needs are, then you can go back to Philippians 4.19, where it says, my God shall supply all your needs, not your wants, your needs. So just so you kind of know how it looks, when you're just starting out, you don't need a $2,000 a month apartment. You don't need a $2,000 a month house. In these parts, you do good with a $700 a month apartment. That would be a good basic need. If you can't afford that, then you find a lower apartment and you can make it work with a one-bedroom studio for about $450. You have to recognize what is your need and what is your want. And if you spend too much time on social media, you're confused and probably a little deranged because you'll try to keep up with the internet Joneses. There's a difference between needs and wants. There is Matthew 6, 11, daily bread, which is basic needs. And Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, daily needs. We know this is more than just bread because you all ate more than bread for breakfast this morning. Bread is symbolic. It actually means food of any kind in the Greek, your daily supply, whatever your daily supply is. And every one of us has a different daily supply, depending on what you're doing, where you're going, how many kids you have, how big your house is, how many vehicles you're operating what kind of clothing you need for your job. We all have a different daily need. Then you have convenient bread, which we just looked at in Proverbs 30. That is bread according to our station in life. Bread according to our station in life. Now we all have daily needs, but then we can also request bread according to where you're at in life today. And honestly, sometimes those stations swell like, Lord, we're about to buy a house. Lord, we're about to buy property. Lord, my first kid's about to go off to college. I've been saving. We need this daily allotment to swell to help us through this season. It's a dynamic. It ebbs and flows, but we're all at a different station in life. There's a lot of talk about racial disparity, income inequality and all that. But time, I was just talking to somebody about this time. When I, when I view time and I view the, the river of world history, it is very much like a glacier in that you can't just stop a glacier where you're at in current time. A glacier is a giant river of ice that is placid, that is plastic, and it is pushing the toe of that glacier off. And it's calving. And you want to try to jump at the toe of that glacier and say, this isn't right. Princess, you have no idea what the last 4,000 years have done to push you to this day. Same with wherever you're coming from. This morning, we have so many walks of life here. I can't go and troubleshoot your past. All I can tell you is what the Bible says you can have going forward. 
And if you want to get hung up on the past, you're doomed to live there. But if you want to move forward, here's the scriptures to do it. You can promote, be promoted through stations of life. My wife was raised poor, born illegitimate to two drug addicts. Weird family dynamic. We could go into great detail. She shared her testimony a while back, but that is not where she is today. God has promoted her through stations of life. If ever there was poor white trash, that would describe how my wife was raised. The houses she was raised in, you would be appalled at. The one house, the last house her daddy lived in before he died, it was demolished. It should not have been standing. It should have been condemned while he was still living in it. I've never been in such a house, not even in Africa. Africans in the bush have nicer houses than my father and all lived in until the day he died. Coal miners, meth addicts, opioid addicts defines the culture my wife was raised in. But something in her heart said, I am not staying here. This is not who I want to be. She even, I don't know if she shared with you when she taught it. She said, I don't even know how I knew to go to the college recruiter, but I went. She said, I got myself into college. Nobody helped me. I don't even know how I know to do that. And worked herself through Purdue University satellite campus in Indiana. She elevated herself through Station of Life. I tell you something, I don't know if she, she wants smoke cigarettes because that's what 14 year olds do in coal country, Indiana. Or she could complain about how unfair it is and how racially disparaged she's been. And those that sing that song condemn their kids to hell, teach them to be victims their entire life. And nobody feels sorry for you but you and your little group of weirdos. With God, you can change anything. Amen. One of my friends, he's actually going to come preach for us. Maybe. Yeah. He was raised so poor. He said, Pastor, you just don't know how poor I was raised in inner city Chicago. And he's a Hispanic guy, though he sounds and looks Italian. But he was raised inner city, worst part of Chicago. He's in his almost 60 now. He is such a wealthy business owner now. He said, I just, I can't even imagine I'm this wealthy. He's a tremendous preacher. He's the whole reason we're in Uganda now. It's through his connections. And uh, he just bought a car, fanciest car I've ever been up close on that I knew some, well, I'll take it back. I knew somebody owned a Ferrari once. But he told me, he said, I just, I even felt bad for buying this car because if you only knew how poor I was, it's hard for me to think I can afford this car now. Was well, a very fancy Italian sports car. He had it six weeks. He curb checked it, which means he tore up the rim, 21-inch rims. I said, Mike, how, you going to go down to, Walmart, get that rim replaced. He laughed. He said, pastor's going to cost me 15 grand to replace the rims. And he's someone who started off in the ghettos of Chicago. And now he's, he's like, I don't know, 15 grand for rims. Do I want to do it? That's a different station in life. His daily bread is fancier than my daily bread, but he works. Dainty bread. Wealth beyond the norms of the culture. Proverbs 23.3 says, If you sit down with a king and you be given an appetite, put a knife to your throat, do not desire his dainty bread. That is bread beyond your domain. That's bread you can't afford to eat more than once a year. You ever heard of Ruth's Chris Steakhouse? That's called a $300 dinner. There are people that will eat that twice a week. That's just where they're at. 
That's nothing to them. That's dainty bread. For most of us, that's a special Valentine's Day or anniversary dinner. And that's after you saved up and somebody gave you two gift cards. <laughs> and even then, you're splitting that filet. <laughs> but for some folks, for some business owners, for some businessmen, that's their lunch three days a week doing business. I have an uncle who was a very high executive. He had friends, their job, they were paid half a million dollars a year to play golf to work business deals. Can you imagine being such a good golfer? You're paid by huge corporations, half a million a year just to wine and dine potential clients on the golf course in the most exclusive golf courses in the world. That is a caliber of bread you don't get to know. We don't begrudge it. That's their caliber. That is dainty bread. And if you're given over to that, the Bible says you put a knife to your throat because you might get to eat here once your life. You might get to play on this golf course once in a lifetime. And other folks, it's there every Friday afternoon. We don't begrudge them that. That's where they're at. And by the way, just so you know, like my watch I'm wearing right now, this is more than a year's salary in some places I go to in Africa. It's all relative. My truck, which is 16 years old, is more than they'll see in their whole lifetime. And I have a very modest truck. It's all relative. Let's keep going here. Brings its own set of problems. Let's look at Ecclesiastes. Let's begin in verse 9. Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. All the king himself is even served by the field. Verse 10, he that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loves abundance shall be satisfied with increase. This is vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. The more stuff you have, the more friends will come around wanting it. And what good is there to the owners thereof save the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich man will keep him up at night. Wealth has its own set of problems. The abundance of the rich man will keep him up and it will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their own hurt. Wealth doesn't promise to make your life easy. The Bible promises that it could really hurt you and give you a lack of sleep. That's why even when we do prosper, we have to do it by the will of God. Like I said, if you ever master money, it can all be taken from you and you'll rebuild tomorrow without batting an eye. Amen. Got to keep moving here. The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich and he adds no sorrows with it. So the Lord does want to bless us and his blessing does make rich and his blessing, if it's him blessing you, it's not going to bring any sorrow or pain. You're not going to lose sleep over it. Anything God gives us becomes an immediate stewardship which we will answer for at some point. In this case, it's money. All the money God gives you, he's going to judge you for. Birthday money, anniversary money, government stimulus money. He's going to want to know what you do with it. And you're going to answer to God for it as am I. I'm going to answer for every dime this church receives as offering. What did you spend it on, son? How did you handle that? We have to understand concerning financial stewardship, we're going to answer to God for what he gives us. We are often guilty of mismanaging what he does give us. Now, here's, here's the critical statement. God gives us just as much as we need and just as much as he trusts us with. So I don't want to, let's disregard your debt. Let's disregard your debt load. Let's disregard where you're at financially today. Your daily income, your weekly income, your monthly income, if we believe in the sovereignty of God, and we do, and we believe we're serving God and we do serve God, 
what we make today is just as much as we need for where we're at, where we're supposed to be at in life. And we make just as much as he trusts us with. I'm not addressing pagans who cheat God. I'm not addressing dirty drug dealers who can make a lot of money or homeless panhandlers who make more money than I do sometimes. I'm dealing with you as a congregation and servants of God. The income you have is just as much as you need to live where God has stationed you in life and just as much as he trusts you with. So then the problem arises if it's not enough. If this amount seems inadequate, we must judge ourselves and our spending. It may be what you've done is you've decided to live beyond your means. I was once part of a Sunday school when I was right out of college and it wasn't quite fair. It was like, it was like 22 year olds to 35 year olds. And there's a huge income gap there. Like I'm changing my own oil and I still do, but then because I couldn't afford to pay for it to be changed. And at the same time, I had a guy that owned a business with like 50 employees, a friend of mine, he's making killer money and it's just wearing me out because he has so much money coming and he's complaining about how to hire right people and what to do. And, and, and like, we're in the same Sunday school class. We should, we should break this up a little bit more because I was trying to keep up with him knowing I couldn't, but it was putting an undue pressure on me. I was where God needed me to be making what I was making because it was teaching me things. This man, great Baptist guy, God trusted him with his own business and he was flourishing at it in Oak Ridge. I was kind of wondering, you should hire me, man. You should hire me. You should. I work hard for you. It just wasn't the direction. If what you have is not enough, you got to judge yourself. Where are you wasting it? What are you spending it on that God did not ordain you to spend it on? Any one of us, even those of us that make the biggest money in this church, we could squander it very quickly if we wanted to. You could go buy a brand new car you don't even need. You could go get into a bigger house that house breaks you. Any one of us, no matter what we make, could destroy our financial stability by living beyond our means, by trying to keep up with the Joneses. And part of this is designed to keep you in humility so that you are content with where God has placed you and what God has made you to be. And if you can be content there, God will increase you to the next level. The Bible says we don't compare ourselves among ourselves. We're in doing so, we're unwise. And all this call right now to burn down the system so we can all be equal is from the pit of hell. It's anti-Christ doctrine. It's antinomianism. It's lawlessness. It's not the will of God. Because here, here's the basic economic premise. If we take everybody's money, put it in one pool, and distribute that $100,000 to every person on the planet today, and we're all equal today, by next Sunday, we're going to have billionaires and broke again. Because it's all about the personal heart of stewardship. By stewardship, that is budgeting and obedience. That's all budget stewardship is. Budgeting and obedience. We can see increase in promotion. By stewardship, financial stewardship. And financial stewardship is two components. And that's it and only it. Budgeting and obedience. Wherever you're at today will begin to change. You're not destined to be poor unless you just refuse to be obedient. You're not destined to be broke just because your daddy was broke. Your color has nothing to do with your income. Even your education level has nothing to do with your income. Now some of, actually the wealthiest men in the world don't have a college education. Some of the most indebted people in the world have gotten to, gone to the most expensive school and bought a degree they couldn't afford. I mean, it's the worst kind of investment. Why would you spend 
$200,000 to get a PhD in a, in a field that won't give you anything back. It's like investing your money in Enron. So you remember Enron from 21 years ago. That was you, man. That's your decision to get a degree in that useless field. Stewardship allows us to keep Jesus as Lord and not slip into serving mammon. Just when you start to prosper, just when your heart begins to trust in money, God will say, I want you to give a big offering, and it resets you. <laughs> it's a prune. It just prunes that stuff off you. Stewardship now then, we're almost done. You guys are listening well. We got a couple quotes. The responsible overseeing and protection of something considered worth caring for and preserving. You have to see every paycheck as a test from God. Every paycheck is an opportunity to prosper or every paycheck is an opportunity to stay broke. The Bible is very clear. Get a job. And the Bible is very clear. If you're a good steward on that job, you'll prosper in that job. It's very, it's very simple. It's spiritual law. Even Joseph, a real slave, sold by his own brothers, prospered as a slave. And no matter how low they threw that man, he prospered and came to the top and was entrusted with the whole of Potiphar's house and then trusted with the whole of Pharaoh's prison and then trusted with the whole of Egypt. He didn't have this victim mindset that is so common to today's young people. Just because it's hashtag doesn't make it spiritual truth. You have to learn stewardship. Financial stewardship requires really two things. One is a budget. We don't have time to teach on that. Teach yourself that. Get books on that. There's all sorts of books on that. But to have a budget, you got to know income and outflow. And your income is what God trusts you with. Your outflow is what you control. And where we hurt ourselves is we open up the gates more than what we have behind the dam. Very simple, and yet America is the most indebted nation. I'm not sure if we caught it from the government or the government caught it from us, but we just keep perpetuating this thing. You must live beneath your means. You must live beneath your means. You must with your means. If you be given to a spending appetite, put a knife to the thing. Learn contentment. Set financial goals. A budget requires diligence to obey. If you don't obey it, it's no good. It's like having a Bible you don't obey. You can build a budget, that's wonderful, but you got to execute the budget, not kill the budget, like bring it to pass. A budget cannot remain theoretical. It must be applied. What do you need a budget for? Anything you want to prosper. If you want to prosper physically, have a calorie budget. If you want to... Uh, bu prosper financially, have a dollar budget or a money budget. If you want to prosper in your time, have a time budget. Amen. A budget is a legalistic law that you can't prosper without. It says no when your lust won't. And any purchase you want to make, I would really encourage you to sit on for a couple weeks or months. Granted, food you need to buy. Gas, you need to buy. You don't need to sit on your mortgage. And should I, I don't know, do I really want to pay this? Yes, yes. Anything apart from basic necessities, I would encourage you to practice some restraint on and see if in six weeks you still want it that bad. Don't make any of these uh, boneheaded purchases. 
Financial stewardship also requires obedience to God. Financial stewardship requires a budget. That's natural wisdom. And then obedience to God because God is going to require tithe, offerings, alms, that is caring for the poor, and generosity. Tithing is just the beginning. Tithing is the bare minimum. And let me also throw this out there, though I don't have a PowerPoint or a bullet point for it. The Bible teaches us to handle money differently in our giving. There's the money we tithe, and that's just uh, simply called the tithe. It has its own set of rules and its own set of rewards. Then you have the offering, and your offering can be commanded by God or it can be compelled by your own heart. And then the Bible teaches us that we are to give alms and to help those in need without anything expecting in return. And then the Bible teaches us there's things we sow as seed because the Bible addresses money as seed no less than five or six times. And then the Bible teaches us that we are to be generous and the generous soul shall be watered himself. So just because you're giving money, you got to figure out which one of those five you're falling into because they all have different sets of rules and different sets of rewards. In the end, the total picture painted is you don't hold tight to money. You let it go. But not so loose that you don't have any to feed your babies with. Stinginess is just as sinful as wastefulness. Stinginess is just as as sinful as wastefulness or prodigality. So don't be stingy. There is that scattereth, and yet it increases. That's generosity. And there is that withholdeth more than is good, and it tends to poverty. That's stinginess. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that waters shall be watered also himself. That's two verses that give us the balance between saving and giving, and stinginess, generosity, And in the end, it's summarized by saying, if you give, you're going to get wet yourself. All right. Financial stewardship requires the constant balance and ebb and flow of spending, saving, giving, withholding, acting, and waiting. This is why you did almost every day in your mind. You see why folks choose to be in welfare in the projects? Because this is a simple 50-minute sermon with 20 PowerPoints. It's just easier just to sit back and let the government feed me. It's too much work to budget. It's too much work to have a food budget. Too much work to have a grocery budget. Too much work. It's just too much. I'll just sit back and let the hard workers take care of me. Biblical prosperity requires hard work to acquire, a budget to manage, and obedience to God in the use of his finances. Three things. Hard work, budget, obedience. That's if you want to prosper. You violate any of these your prosperity, your promotion, your provision will screech to a halt. Prosperity requires constant, constant, constant work in the forms of labor, budgeting, managing, self-denial, research, investing, giving, prayer, obedience. Why aren't there more rich people? Because of that. Why are there more scratch-off lotto ticket players than there are millionaires? Because of that. It takes work. The whole of creation is under a curse. That means it requires work to bring something up out of it. And we just want like, what did they say in the 80s? My money for nothing. We want money for nothing. And we think you owe it to me because your dad was mean to my dad. Really? Well, your son robbed my wife. 
I think it's all fair. It all shakes out. In the end, we stand before God for ourselves, not anybody else. The alternative is to sit back and have nothing, ultimately expecting other people to care for you. That's why poverty is abundant. It's easy. Be faithful over another man so God can give you your own. Be faithful in the little things and God will make you ruler over much. Work, 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 work. Well, I'm working. It's not anywhere. And then God's word is a lie, I guess. Or is it maybe you're not adjusting things as you need to? Let somebody investigate why your work isn't prospering. Zig, born-again believer, actually went to church with my cousin in Texas. He's dead now, but he was a very wealthy man and a Christian speaker. He said, rich people have small TV, big libraries, and poor people have small libraries and these. I've been in some of those poor people's homes where they have bigger TVs and more junk toys than I've got. And yet it was all bought off of welfare. Another quote. Anne Rand, a Russian immigrant woman who famously wrote Atlas Shrugged, she said, and she was also a philosopher, she died, I think, in the 60s, 1960s. She said, money is only a tool. It will take you wherever you wish, but it will not replace you as the driver. It's a pretty good quote. Atlas Shrug is considered one of the great capitalistic novels that debunks socialism, coming from a Russian who was living through it. They made it into a movie a couple years ago. It's a massive book. My dad's read it. I've never read it. I'm just familiar with it. But a great quote. Seneca first century Roman uh, philosopher, Greek philosopher. Wealth is a slave of a wise man, but the master of a fool. Wealth slave of a wise man. When you're wise, you give me money, it works for me. When you're a fool, money owns you. Harv Eck, if you are willing to do what is only easy, life will be hard but if you're willing to do what is hard, life will be easy. He's a self-made millionaire and an author. And let me end on a scripture so I'll end on a secular quote. He called his 10 servants and he delivered them 10 pounds and he said unto them, occupy till I come. That is your command and my command. He has given us income. He has given us intellect. He's given us effort, work, we're to do business till he comes. In this parable of the stewards, he was expecting them to increase what he'd given them. And that's the same commandment for us. Whatever he's given us, he expects us to increase it before he returns. And no excuse will be accepted. Now, if that wasn't possible, even in the bush of Africa, near the Nile River, where everybody subsistence farms, God would be unjust to give that commandment. If, I, if I'm raised in the bush of Uganda near the Nile River and I'm a subsistence farmer and I find this verse that says, do business till I come and I expect an increase, then I'm going to get it every day. Lord, nobody in this village has ever increased, but your word tells me I must. So show me what it looks like and watch me prosper beyond my fellow tribesmen. And if it'll work in the bush of Africa, it'll work for you in Cookville. Quit believing the political rhetoric of the day that you can't get ahead because there's all this prejudice against you. Most of your prejudice is in your head. My friend, uh, Dr. Lonnie Brown, an African-American pastor out of Flint, he says, I teach my church the problem is not the white man, it's the black mind. Dr. Lonnie Brown, African-American pastor in Flint, Michigan. His, 
His mantra is, the problem is not the white man, it's the black mind. Needless to say, a lot of this town don't like him because he's making them be responsible. Same for poor white folk. Hey, man, you better be using that white privilege. You got it, apparently. Cash it in. Somebody should have taught my father-in-law about it before he died. All this is just foolishness. You're responsible for yourself. With you, God, you're a majority. Change anything. If it'll work for a slave named Joseph, it'll work for you, a free man. Amen.